Welcome to this episode of the First Trust ROI podcast. My name is Ryan Isakainen, ETF strategist here at First Trust. This has been a really unusual market environment. As we came into this year, nobody, and I mean nobody, had forecasts that the stock market would have performed the way that it has. Um, you know, people have, I think, sat out in many cases from the participation in the market because of um, some expectations that. We would see a recession. We would see earnings drop, and our view is that that is probably still going to happen. But at the same time, investors need to have exposure to stocks in order to reach their goals, in order to reach their objectives, uh, and that is a conundrum. How do you participate in markets while recognizing there is a strong potential for a recession, which is often accompanied by a downdraft in stock prices? And that's why I am really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, joining me today in the podcast is Jeff Chang, the president of SIBOVEST. Uh, Jeff co-founded that firm about a decade ago, and SIBOVEST has been a great partner of First Trust. They're a sub-advisor for a number of our funds and our UITs, um, and they really have come up with a solution. Um, essentially, they provide a downside buffer against negative returns for the market while allowing participation on the upside. We'll dig into that. And so I'm looking forward to the conversation with Jeff today. Thanks for joining us and please enjoy. Jeff Chang, welcome to the First Trust ROI podcast. Ryan, thanks for having me. You and I grabbed coffee before we started and you were explaining to me the concept of a coffee name. So as we get started here, can you explain it for the viewers of the ROI podcast, this, this value add idea of a coffee name when you go into the coffee shop? Yeah, so like when you go in a coffee shop, you say Jeff or you say Ryan, you, they end up yelling Ryan or Brian, Jeff or John. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's good to pick a coffee name that no one's going to mess up. So mine is Megatron. Uh, I've been trying to get you to make it. Yeah. Obviously, your name is Megatron. Yeah, and they're not going to mistake in that for anybody else. Um, and it's also entertaining just to see as they yell Megatron in the coffee shop, uh, everybody looks to see who that is. That is the type of innovation that, uh, that we're looking for. So, Jeff, um, I've known you for a while now. You were the president of SIBOVEST. Uh, you co-founded SIBOVEST about a decade ago yep. uh, with, your, with your co-founder, Karan. And... Um, you guys have been churning out all sorts of really innovative solutions for investment professionals, for investors. Um, looking at the landscape of where we are today, what would you say the number one issue, the number one problem, and the number one question that, that investment professionals are faced with today? In the market today, um, as you look at it, I think uh, many of us have never faced a market with inflation. Right, uh, or manage money uh, in an inflationary environment, and it poses unique challenges, uh, especially in you know the rally that we've seen recently, where it's really concentrated in you know a few select stocks, um, and so that then you start to look at as interest rates start to go up, um, the kind of the foundation of asset allocation and kind of risk management had always been uh, you know diversify as well as hope the hope that you know when my stocks go down, my bonds go up, so. A lot of times investors today are looking for alternative ways to provide risk management uh, outside of let's just say diversification and asset allocation, uh, as well as um, different ways they can generate income that is alternative to let's just say fixed income. So getting creative 
uh, in kind of this inflationary environment, uh, I think is critical as far as in portfolio construction, um, especially where, you know, where the market is set up today. Now, your firm specializes in um, products that are related to mainly derivatives, right? Options. And there's different ways to structure those to, to seek different outcomes or to boost your level of income. And I want to talk about some of those. But before I do, you know, I think there's this perception that some of the public has that options are just this, this risky thing that uh, makes some people nervous. So why should they not think that way? Yeah, so you know, options are just the building blocks, right? And uh, you know, some of the biggest reasons why people don't um, maybe perhaps trade options themselves actually comes down to even in the advisor community compliance, right? There's a huge kind of compliance hurdle that can come with option trading, uh, as well as scalability, right? Um, options expire, uh, you have to keep trading it, and you start to have 300 clients. It's a lot of trades to actually get done. So what we specialize is in actually is just using those building blocks to actually create solutions, right? We utilize those options to just create these types of solutions, whether it be in ETFs or UITs uh, or any other wrapper. Uh, so that way, it's, we're not selling the ingredients, we're actually creating the entire cake. Let's jump into some of these solutions. And I think one of the, one of the it's, it's been really amazing to see some of the growth that buffered products in particular have had, especially, you know, the timing has been pretty outstanding, pretty remarkable, right before COVID hit, and you know the world shut down and risk markets sold off. Uh, first Trust launched our first series of, of buffered ETFs that were sub-advised by SIBOVEST. And uh, so maybe take a minute or two and tell me um, or, or tell our listeners, what does a buffered ETF aim to do? Why, why have these become so popular? What do they do? The buffer strategies have been around for over 30 years. Some people have seen them in structure notes, uh, annuities, or just trading the options themselves, creating a, a hedge. Um, and, and in this case would be, let's say, like a put spread collar. So the strategy itself has not um, been new. What the introduction of having it in, in different wrappers now, UITs, ETFs as well, uh, allow you to access that type of strategy uh, in, like I said, perhaps a more liquid form. Uh, and so, for instance, a, a buffer ETF or the buffer strategy itself gives you downside protection, let's say the first 10% for one year. So if S&P is down 10, uh, you would be down zero before fees and expenses. But then you get upside participation up to uh, a cap. But the great thing about a put option on S&P, it's very similar to, you know, the, the negative correlation is, is perfect in the sense that for every dollar past its strike price, that put option uh, would be would be paying you guaranteed by the clearing of the exchange. What gives you the upside participation? So the upside participation, we actually buy, um, let's say for a particular strategy, we'll buy a call option basically really close to zero to get the exposure to the underlying. So as an example, if we were getting exposure to S&P, uh, we may buy a really low strike call on S&P. Okay, so based on market conditions then, that's why that upside cap will vary with those sorts of products, right? Yeah. This type of structure, so as volatility is higher, the, the call option can be sold higher. The reason why is as volatility goes up, the call option will generate more premium. And so the potential to sell it higher uh, comes in to, in, into play. So that's why higher vol creates a higher cap. Okay, so that's, that's a really important point. Um, as we're thinking about these types of strategies in a 
in an environment with increased volatility, a lot of risk, um, that actually ends up with a higher cap. Is that what you're telling us? That's right. That's right. So as the, um, and if we're talking about a one-year strategy, as the one-year volatility goes up, uh, that call premium will generate higher. And so thereby the the cap would be higher. Now, what also creates call premiums higher is also interest rates. So mm -hmm. if the one-year interest rate were to go up, that premium, that call premium is also going to increase. That also raises the, the strike price and cap to the structure. Um, in a UIT structure, in First Trust, we have various types of structure that we work with. CBOVEST as the sub-advisor for managing these products. But in the UIT structure, there's a beginning, there's a maturity, and the terms are set at the beginning, and it's based on the contractual value of those options. In the ETF, that's not the case. So how does the ETF then work? You've reached the end of your, your one-year period from the time it started. What happens next? If it's a one-year option, um, and let's say it's expiring on the third Friday inside an ETF, those options will expire, uh, and then we'll buy a new set of options uh, on that same day. Uh, now, the investor holds the ETF. They don't um, well, they'll see the NAV movement uh, to the terms. So given that, you know, if you have a 10% buffer or upside cap, let's say you've hit your cap and it's 15, you should get that 15% uh, if you look from NAV from the beginning of the third Friday, one year ago to the third Friday of uh, at expiration, that NAV to NAV uh, would basically reflect the terms of, of the buffer ETF. Now, um, the investor, just like an ETF rebalance, doesn't notice anything. Um, it, it, the ETF continues to run, uh, and this has many benefits. First off, it solves for the scalability. The investor actually doesn't have to trade the new options, right? So if you have 200 clients, 300 clients, the buffer ETF is automatically rolling for you. The second component is the potential for tax efficiency, right? As long as the ETF doesn't make a distribution, uh, and then those gains can roll, whereas if they were holding the actual options in their let's say brokerage account, every time that option expires, and if they were in a gain, you know, obviously, you know, Uncle Sam's gonna take his pound of flesh out of that trade. But by combining ETF technology with option technology, uh, there's the potential for tax efficiency. And the first trust CBOVS buffer ETFs are the only lineup of equity buffer ETFs that have never distributed a capital gain yet. So we've been talking mainly about someone, if they, if they say purchase on the rebalance date, they know what their outcome is likely to be based on the value of those options. What if they buy it you know, five days later? How, how can they understand what the terms are uh, at a different point in time than the, than the rebalance date or the, the, the day that the initial terms are set? What's great about options is at expiration, it's a math problem. Right, wherever S and P is going to end, if it's you know above its cap, below its cap, or in the buffer, or below the buffer, it's a mathematical calculation that the options will calculate what they will pay. Now, when the investor gets in, they're going to pay a particular price for that option, and if you calculate, okay, I paid a, a specific price for these options today, then it's a math problem. Hey, let's say you know a little less than one year from now. What is that going to actually? What are these options actually going to pay? Now, what's critical here is, is that at First Trust we um, um, have great tools on the website that you can actually see. Let's say for a particular strategy, if I were to get it in, in let's say five days after the roll, and I pay this price, uh, and then on the third Friday, let's say on in the uh, in, in let's say a little less than a year. I can actually see, hey, if S&P is up 10, down 10, up 20% or down 20%, what is that uh, strategy going to actually pay you? 
So that is, that is updated throughout the day on the First Trust website, so that's something important. And, and something else you just said is another point that I was gonna, uh, wanted to highlight, and that is the fact that because the value of the ETF derives from the value of those underlying options, you know what it's worth throughout the trading day. And so these trade like any other ETFs, correct? That's right, so you get um, intraday, ability to actually see how the options actually are, are trading. Um, secondly, the tool themselves is actually intraday. You can also see, I think there's like a 15 minute delay. So even throughout the day, you can see, hey, if I were to uh, enter into this strategy, what that potentially would give you. And because this isn't a note that's issued by a bank, you're actually not faced with that additional uncompensated credit risk, correct? That's correct. So the um, each of these strategies hold uh, exchange-traded options, and the counterparty to those exchange-traded options is the clearing of the exchange, which is OCC. So um, every exchange-traded options faces the option clearing corp, uh, which is the clearing of the option exchange. So hopefully that demystifies the product. I know we, we uh, delved into the weeds a little bit, but uh, I think that's really important for this type of, of investment product because it is a little bit more complicated until you kind of break it down and then it's much clearer. Um, but this has been far and away one of the fastest areas of growth in the ETF industry. Um, as you talk to investment professionals and their, you know, some of their clients, what's, what's the typical use case? I think you mentioned it at, at, the, at the outset. How are people using these in an investor's portfolio? Like I mentioned earlier about diversifying your risk management and introducing hedging, um, it kind of reduces that reliance on kind of a stable negative correlation between stocks and bonds. Um, so that's one use case is where uh, if you look at, like as an example, um, if you look at a 10% buffer on S&P, uh, it has a very similar standard deviation to, let's say, a 60-40 portfolio if you look at it over the long term. Uh, so if I were to introduce that, let's say, into a 60-40 portfolio, let's say if I take $10 out, right, six from equity, four from fixed income, and I put it in a 10% uh, buffer strategy, uh, the volatility could be very similar, uh, but what, we, what we've done is change the risk management from just asset allocation and introduce hedging, uh, which uh, kind of reduces, like I said, that reliance on, on the negative correlation between stocks and bonds. So essentially what you're doing is diversifying the way that you're managing risk, is that right? That's right. And the, and the second component is also uh, where investors want to reduce their risks. They want to reduce their beta. Maybe they're looking at, hey, this rally uh, is only in a couple of stocks. Uh, they're not sure whether they had missed the boat. This is a really unusual market environment where we seem to be at the edge of a recession. You know, First Trust uh, Economics has been calling for a recession sometime later this year, early next year, possibly. Um, that's usually accompanied by a drop in earnings. You know, uh, earnings multiples can drop, but at the same time, <laughs> Stocks keep pushing higher, and I think a lot of investors want to have exposure to markets, but they want some level of protection on the downside. And this is the sort of environment where these really thrive. Yeah, that's right. And it also, because of that kind of setup, you, you sometimes also get clients that want to go to cash, right? right? And that can be extremely, if you look over the long term, uh, you know, you, you don't know. So. This allows them to feel a little bit more comfortable anywhere. Uh, you know, if they are super conservative, we have strategies with, the, let's say, you know, 30% buffer. Um, it allows them to get off the sidelines, still participate. 
So again, these buffered ETFs, about $31 billion in assets roughly uh, today. Another area that, that CBOVEST sub-advises some first trust ETFs is what we call our target income funds. This is another area, these call writing ETFs. We've seen something like $17 billion of net inflows um, or, or assets under management today um, in that particular category of ETFs. And what's remarkable about that is most of it's come over the last few years. So, um, you know, what's, what's different about those target income products? They're also using options, but how do they work? So we've seen, like you said, a huge growth in kind of cover call writing strategies um, and funds. I think uh, largely driven by, you know, volatility is higher. Like I said, that generates call premiums more. Also, interest rates have gone up. That also makes the strategy more attractive. So some of the things that most asset classes dislike, cover call strategies uh, actually tend to benefit. Now, our target income strategy actually works backwards. So what makes that unique is, is um, uh, most, in most cases, clients, they have potential cash flow needs. And that cash flow doesn't vary in the sense that, um, like, if I were to sell a call, when vol is high, I may generate more income. When vol is low, I generate less income. But they want that stable level of cash flow. So target income really addresses that because we start with a level of income and then we write calls to meet that target. So that's what really makes target income more unique than what you see out there in the marketplace today where the income level can vary, right? And so uh, as an example, um, you know, if I were to target 8% over S&P div yield, so if S&P is yielding, let's say 1%, I add 8 to that, let's say my target is 9. I'm just going to write just enough cover calls to get to that 9% yield. Now, in cover call writing, I think there are, uh, I think, three things that uh, people should be very much aware of. The first one is the, the biggest driver of return in cover call funds is actually stock selection. So whenever you look at a cover call strategy, that's the first aspect that should be evaluated. Is the underlying stocks quality? Are they going to perform over the long term? There's a lot of different covered call ETFs out there. So just like you're evaluating other equity ETFs, that's step one. Kind of looking at, right. you know, what do they actually invest in? Okay, uh, what's... What's next? So the second is, is that there are certain pitfalls in cover call writing. Um, I, we noticed that one of the biggest pitfalls in cover call writing is covering the entire portfolio. Uh, the reason why, and that is really the Achilles heel, is because when the market comes down and comes back up, you're, you're completely covered if you cover the entire portfolio. So we saw this in 09. So after the 08 crisis, market came down. There's, uh, you know, a large, uh, there's a lot of closed end funds that had cover call strategies and they got capped out. So when the 2009 recovery occurred, uh, you know, they massively underperformed the market. We saw that again in uh, March of 2020 during COVID. Uh, strategies that cover the entire portfolio underperformed significantly the market because, as we know, come April, May, the market really kind of rallied back, but they weren't participating in that upside. So that's why the, the second thing is if you're looking at a cover call strategy and covering the entire portfolio, you have to be aware that, that there's that Achilles heel there. Um, and then the last is that uh, make sure that you have an edge. Mm. Markets are efficient. Um, we like to think about when we write cover calls that there's something there that is allowing us to, to capture a little bit of little extra. Now, this is where target income comes in. Like I said, we vary the amount of options that we write to generate that income. And uh, instead of capping the entire portfolio, we may, let's say, write at the money calls on, let's say, 20% of the portfolio. So you get 80% of the upside uh, plus that yield. 
So as an example, if, if I had a strategy and, it, and I covered 20% of the portfolio, um, if market goes up 10%, then I'm participating on 80% of that upside. So I, I still, let's say, if it's up 10, I, I get eight. Uh, and then in my target income, let's say I have a nine yield, then there's a potential for, let's say, like a 17% return. Whereas if I cover the entire portfolio, I would just get that yield. I wouldn't participate in that upside. Now, the edge that where we see a lot of innovation and what we're really proud of is, is that uh, several different ways that you can write calls to kind of get a little bit more edge. So it, a lot of times people will write on an index, right? An index is fully diversified. And if it's diversified, it tends to have less volatility. Now, if I take the exact same index and I write on each individual name, though, each individual stock is not diversified. It has more volatility and has the potential to generate more premium. Now, the downside of that is, is that if I have an index of, let's say, you know, 50 stocks, I got to write calls on each of those 50. So hold on. Uh, I, I want to draw that point out because I think that's a really important point that people would understand intuitively, um, but I just want to make sure we don't gloss gloss over it. So what you're saying is you can get more premium by owning the individual options or writing the individual options as opposed to the whole thing, because the whole thing, you've got the variance between the stocks that helps diversify your risk. And so you don't get as much volatility and you don't get as much call premiums. Right. So by doing this on individual names as one of the edges, potentially, you can get more premium. Is that right? That's right. And so, um, the downside, though, of yep. it, it's a lot of work. Right. Right. If like that's I said, we have you. yeah, and that's why, like, if you had like fifty stocks and you know, like, let's say, you know, three hundred clients, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of trades that you, you'd have to make a year. But now we are able to provide that in the ETF and uh, or a, a, you know, an ETF or any other wrapper. Uh, so what you end up getting is you get that income, uh, perhaps not giving up as much upside. Now, the other edge that we've seen that um, is, is out there that we've seen in the institutional space is uh, writing weekly. So writing weekly calls instead of writing monthly calls. That's right. That's right. And what's the advantage of that? If you look at a monthly uh, call option, so when you sell a call option, you want the premium to go to zero, right? Because you sold it. You want it, it to expire. Exactly. Months. Exactly. Right. And if you notice that decay, the, the drop in premium is the most in the last seven days. Right. In fact, it starts to accelerate. And so, so if why you, is that? it's it's the idea that like as it approaches expiration, because the option will be worthless after uh, after expiration. So that acceleration always occurs. It's similar to like football tickets, right? Game times at one o'clock, right? If you notice, if you look on StubHub at twelve o'clock, tickets starts that's to the drop. Best time to be uh, looking for your StubHub tickets. Exactly. Exactly. Because you see that same impact of the drop in price. The only thing that doesn't do that is Taylor Swift tickets, but. <laughs> Options and regular tickets are, are typically have that accelerated decay. And if you write options four times a month, um, there is a potential ability to actually generate more premium than you would have uh, in a monthly option. So, so how does that compare? If you were to look at um, over the course of a month, you write four successive weekly calls as opposed to a month. Uh, what's I mean? Can you compare the two? Is quantitatively like what's yeah. the what, what what would you expect? There's a lot of variables to it, right? Uh, between monthlies and, and weeklies, if you compare sure. them. But if you do it four times a month, you know there is the potential. So it's a it's a significant amount. It's a, amount it's a significant income. amount. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. As an individual trying to uh, trying to access that sort of strategy, the problem is they have to write all those calls. That's right. They have. That's right. It's a lot of work. 
Yeah, because there's 52 weeks out of the year, you got to trade those, and if you start to have, you know, 100 clients, 200 clients, you have to write an option every week. It becomes very, very challenging. Um, and so, even more so, what is even more exciting is if you combine the two, and you actually write single stock weeklies. Now you have the edge in both cases, right? You 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 have the individual names plus you're writing them weekly. And so, different types of uh, ETFs, you can you can execute different types of strategies. And, and what you're saying is you're looking for specific to that specific basket of stocks that's in an ETF. You're looking for the most edge that you can, then you can access, is that right? That's right, so just accessing those benefits so that way you can retain the, the upside. Because the other component of, the, of, let's say, the target income strategy is, as you notice, as volatility goes up, it generates more call premium. Well, in a target income strategy, it doesn't mean that you're going to get more yield. It actually means that you're writing less calls, so you're getting more upside participation. But what's interesting about that, though, if you, if you look historically, um, that when volatility goes up, that means the mar stock market is going down, right? Um, and that means that when vol goes up, we write less calls. And, that, and when the market snaps back, you're actually in a position where vol is elevated to participate more because you sold less calls. But when the market snaps back, there's almost an according effect to target income where you sell less calls when the market actually goes down. So that way when it comes back, you get more, uh, that potential for more upside participation than a normal, let's say, just like covering the entire portfolio type okay. strategy. So what you're saying is there's a variable amount of participation and that changes based on volatility because that accounts for the, the call premiums that you're receiving and you have to write less calls in a more volatile environment. So in the, the instance you're talking about, like we saw in the big swoon during COVID, yep. where things really sold off, you wanted to have the ability to participate on the way back. That's right. So what's, what's the use case? Um, as people are thinking about, you know, how do I put something like this into a portfolio? Where does it fit? Um, is it, does this, you know, this sort of product replace a part of their fixed income, part of their equities, part of their alternatives? Where do you see it most often? The great thing is, like I said, when the first thing about looking at a, a cover call strategy is picking good stocks, right? So this really can sit inside an equity core as a way to generate income off the equity portion of the portfolio. Because in most cases, fixed income serves two purposes, right? A ballast and a source of income. Now, from a risk management perspective, our buffer strategies can really help to provide additional ballast, but where once you uh, that buffer strategy is in there, may not where does that income come from? So you can actually then generate that income from that equity core using target income. So the two strategies really kind of marry themselves very well because they are also creating a ballast and also a source of income. All right. Well, Jeff Chang, the options guru for target income, target outcome, and a variety of other strategies that your firm has helped to uh, develop, and you've done a. a Fantastic job in sub-advising several First Trust funds. So uh, on behalf of uh, First Trust, I want to thank you for that, first of all. But also thank you for joining the ROI podcast. Uh, thanks to all those who have joined us as well. We will see you next time. Thank you, Ryan.